listening to the Paul McGuire Report. This is Paul McGuire. On today's program, we're going to analyze what is happening in the United States, how it affects you, and what is happening on a global level. So knowledge is power, as we always say in this program, and that is a biblical truth. It's, it's repeated in the book of Proverbs over and over again, and it's repeated throughout God's Word over and over again. So if you don't have knowledge, well, then you're powerless. If you're powerless, you're setting yourself up to be a stooge, a, a soft target, a victim. And one thing the Bible teaches us is that God did not create his people to be perpetual victims, going from one circumstance of victimhood to another circumstance of victimhood, and so on and so forth. Christ promised us the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ promised us that through his power and through the knowledge of his word, we are supposed to be overcomers. We're supposed to be victorious in the spiritual battle. Now, I want to add uh, a word of balance to that. Although everything I just said is true, because that's what the Bible teaches, you have to teach the Scripture in context or connection with the entirety of Scripture. So you can't just cherry-pick Scriptures that you like and then, you know, attach yourself to them without balancing that with other Scriptures in the Bible. Because when you balance it by comparing and contrasting it to other scriptures in the Bible, you come up with a re-energized sense of of the original truth. God's word is true; it's always true. But you see that there are factors um, that have to be considered if you're going to have knowledge and understanding. So, for example, you know, in the Book of Hebrews. Uh, chapter 11, which is often called the faith chapter, you see all this uh, discussion, and all of it is absolutely true, about faith and how important faith is. We're going to get into that a little bit uh, later on in the uh, Paul McGuire report. But I want to take you with me on a global perspective, an aerial view, if you will, of uh, what's happening in America and across the world. Now, it's not as difficult as some people make it seem to to fit together properly all the puzzle pieces and come up with a coherent picture, a comparative picture, a coherent picture of, or a vision, or an understanding of, or a perception of what really is happening. So we have and have had, let's just arbitrarily take for the last 75 years, because it's been going on actually since ancient Babylon at the time of the building of the Tower of Babel. But in the last 75 years, and actually before that, it has things on the earth, so to speak, have accelerated. They have become more pronounced. Another way of putting it that I think would be very accurate is to simply say that at this time period, there are more Bible prophecies being fulfilled than at any other time in human history. So we live in a time of the fulfillment of unprecedented uh, Bible prophecies. And I don't think it's an accident. And some people, you know, they get upset when you talk about this, but I have to be faithful to the Word of God, not what, you know, people like or dislike. In 1948, Israel was reborn as a nation. 
And that was and is God's prophetic super sign in terms of God's prophetic time clock. Now, some people say, well, the Jews have forfeited the, the right to the land of Israel because they're so immoral and idolatrous it's, and evil, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the only way really to answer that is you have to be honest about that. It is true uh, in Israel and other places, the Jews, like every other people on planet Earth, despite the fact that they were given uh, the assignment by God to bear witness to the light of God or the law of God, to all the nations of the earth. That was a very lofty assignment, and uh, they, they messed it up a lot. Now, the question is, people say, well, then that means they lost their right to the physical land of Israel. They forfeited their right to possess that land. And what the New Testament says, these people will, will argue, is that uh, the church, Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, they are the new Israel, and they have the right to possess the physical land of Israel. The Jews have forfeited that right, and that's their argument, and it's expressed in many different theological positions. The only, the only problem with that argument is this. If you apply that argument, and if you're claiming that that is a proper uh, understanding of God's Word, for example, the Catholic Church believes that. The Catholic Church believes that they are the, the new Israel and that they have a right to control and, and own Jerusalem and uh, Israel. But many Christians believe that also. Okay, so the reason people will mount such an argument is because, again, they say Israel violated the terms of the covenant with God, which it did continually, and Israel. Uh, and the Jews have become immoral, unlawful, idolatrous, you know, they're worshiping false gods, etc., all of which is true. But if you were to apply that same, that same lens and that same scrutiny to Christians, to the Christian church regarding America or whatever, or just Christians, you would have to say, if you looked at the body of Christ today, and if you looked at the body of Christ in prior years, ever since Christ ascended into heaven and the church was born on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, you would have to look at Christians, and if you gave them the same intense scrutiny that you give Jews, you would come up with the fact that Christians also have violated the covenant with Jesus Christ, the new covenant. They violated the covenant. Christians have uh, uh, been idolatrous, worshipped false idols and false gods. Christians have become immoral, and they have the same morality as our God-rejecting world. Uh, Christians um, are immoral and lawful, and they violated the covenant. So the very same criticisms that you levy against the Jews would have to be levied against Christians, the body of Christ, and Christianity as a whole. They're guilty of the same thing, the same types of sins. And then they say, well, the Jews, you know, quote, killed Christ. Well, Christians kill Christ all the time. When they deny the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and its proper application to our lives and to what God is calling us to do versus what we're actually doing, we are denying Christ. We are killing Christ. 
in a spiritual sense. So, if that is the case, and it is the case, if that's the case, then Christians can't claim a, a superior spirituality just because they're heirs to the new covenant. They can't claim uh, that they have the right to Jerusalem, that they're the new Israel in its entirety, and that they uh, have a right to possess the land of Israel in Jerusalem. So you're left with a dilemma. Now, the dilemma, the apparent dilemma, is really not a dilemma. It's a failure to properly interpret the Word of God. The answer to the apparent dilemma, because it, again, it's not really a dilemma, it's the confusion is caused by people not rightly dividing the Word of God. That's why knowledge, biblical knowledge, of course, is paramount to communicate. That's one of the foundations of this ministry, Paradise Mountain Church and Paul McGuire Ministries. One of the foundational precepts of this ministry is the authority of the Word of God and to rightly divide the Word of God. And that comes from the fact that by the grace of God, I was heavily influenced by the great theologian, Christian theologian and philosopher, Dr. Francis Schaeffer. And I thank God for that, because I could have easily been swept away by every wind of doctrine, false doctrine, that has blown through the body of Christ in the last number of decades. But I, I was anchored, I was properly anchored in the authority of the Word of God, the inspired and inerrant Word of God. And that came from a deep theological understanding that Dr. Francis Schaeffer imparted upon me in his books and things that I was involved in, and also a deep intellectual and philosophical and scientific and rational understanding of the Scripture, because the entire thing is not separate. Spirituality, true spirituality, biblical spirituality, is not separate from true scientific reason, not pseudo-scientific reason. Okay, so the bottom line is, we're all, as, as members of the body of Christ, we are all sinners saved by grace. That's the teaching of the Scripture. One of the most foundational teachings of the Scripture is the reality that we are all fallen creatures because of Adam and Eve. And as fallen creatures, we are all sinners. We all have a sin nature, and we're all sinners saved by grace. And grace means unmerited or unearned favor from God. So the beauty of the New Testament is that the New Testament promises if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and ask forgiveness for your sins, all of your sins are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, past, present, and future. So you always have confidence in coming to God, because God doesn't hold anything against you if your repentance and your acquisition of cleansing by the blood of Jesus Christ has been done. Now, the other thing is that you can be born again by faith. It's not contingent. Being born again is not contingent about how good you are, holy and righteous. If that was the case, then the Bible would not be the good news. It would be very, very bad news, like like the name of an old expression. But every time I say this expression, I think of an old movie. You may not like it. It may be offensive. But I love the movie in its time, and that was Dog Day Afternoon. Now, I'm being a little bit sarcastic here, but in <laughs> Dog Day Afternoon, it was a bad day for a bunch of bank robbers because their bank robbery went, went south, like, really quickly. And, you know, enough on the movie. So, without grace, unmerited favor, it, it would be a bad day for every Christian. 
a dog day afternoon or worse because uh, we're all sinners. So we would be under perpetual condemnation. But the Apostle Paul said, there is therefore now no com, uh, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so that we cannot be condemned by the law of God, which which is God. We cannot be condemned by God, even though he's righteous and holy, if we repented, because our repentance and our faith in what Christ has done has cleansed us from all sin. And if we are cleansed from all sin, and we are, then there is the, no condemnation against us if we're in Christ Jesus. So, we're saved by grace, unmerited favor. Now, just because we're saved by grace, unmerited favor, doesn't mean that the, the, the reality is not true, which we have sinned and violated the law of God in numerous ways. The only difference is we've taken advantage of God's free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. So, we, we now understand the Word of God properly. The Word of God, interpreted properly, teaches us that Christians are sinners, just like the Jews were and are, and we're saved by grace. The Jews are called to, to walk and shine the light of the law of God. So, both of us are dependent, ultimately, upon the revelation of the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, to cleanse us uh, of all of our sins. Now, that being the case, we are not superior to any man or woman or to the Jews. That doesn't give us a right to certain covenants in the Old Testament, that if you read a covenant that God made, for example, with the physical descendants of Abraham, you need to read that with the same clarity of mind, the same laser-like precision and focus uh, that you would read a legal contract with. Because it is, a covenant from God is a legal contract between God and whatever party he designates, or her person or group he designates. Covenant simply means a, a contract. So in this contract, God specifically says that he has given the physical land of Israel, including Jerusalem, to the physical descendants of Abraham as part of an everlasting covenant or contract. And that means, everlasting means, everlasting. It means that it goes on without end. There's no, but it means if you read it as it's intended to be read, literally, what it's saying is, it's saying very clearly that um, we're saved by grace and that God has given contractually to the physical descendants of Abraham, Israel, as part of an everlasting covenant or an everlasting contract, which means, if you read it literally, that there's no end to their everlasting possession of Israel because of the covenant or contract that God made with the physical descendants of Israel. So they cannot lose. Listen carefully. You have to read the scripture as it is. You can't, like, make it up. You know, watching some of the court proceedings against the former president, it's ridiculous. Obviously, they want to promote the idea that there's two sets of laws, or maybe three sets of laws. One set of laws for them, which excludes them from just about anything. Another set of laws that they're attempting to apply to the president. And then another set of laws for we the people, the, 
the ordinary citizens of the United States. It was never intended to be that way. In fact, one could raise the argument that it is an egregious violation of the law, as our founding fathers intended in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It's an egregious violation of the law to splinter it into different applications, depending upon who's in power or who the elite are. The the law of the United States of America was written for everyone and every citizen. Unlike Great Britain and the European nations, it wasn't written just for royalty and the super wealthy and the super powerful and the super rich. The, The laws of the United States of America were to every man and woman. And that is the contract that is supposed to be in operation right now. And part of the the social disruption and the discordance occurring in our nation is because, once again, there has been an egregious violation of the intent and meaning of the law of the land framed in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights by our founding fathers. So back to the nation of Israel. Israel, because it is the beneficiary of an everlasting covenant between Abraham and the physical descendants of Abraham. They are given, as beneficiaries of that covenant or contract, they are given the physical land of Israel, which includes Jerusalem, as an everlasting covenant or an everlasting contract. So that means it continues without end. Now, people argue and say, well, what about the other covenants? And yes, that's absolutely right. There are numerous covenants in the Bible that God has made. One that just comes to my mind right now is that when Noah and his family, when finally after they obeyed God and built the ark, and finally the waters began to subside, and as they were looking up into the sky with the waters or the great flood subsiding all around their ark, they saw a rainbow. The rainbow was a sign from God. It was a visible symbol of a contract that God made with Noah and all the descendants of the human race. It was a physical contract. The the rainbow was a physical contract between God and mankind, where God promised to Noah and mankind that he would never destroy the earth or judge the earth with a rainbow again. Now, that's important. It's not that God said he would never judge the earth, or he would never judge man, or that he would never uh, send his wrath upon the earth or mankind. He's not saying that. He's talking about one specific thing called the rainbow. The rainbow would never be used as a sign of impending judgment. And the rainbow is a sign that God will never destroy the earth through a flood. Now, God isn't playing cutesy little games. But if you read your Bible, you do see that eventually. Because it has to be done, the earth has become so defiled on multiple levels, that Bible prophecy teaches us that there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and the old heaven and the old earth will be burnt up or destroyed completely. Why would God have to do that? Because he's some kind of sociopath? No. God has to do that because embedded in the earth, in in the multiple, multiple dimensions that our earth exists and that the heavens exist, The reality is it has become defiled. It's become the habitation of unclean spirits and demons and toxic frequencies and every every evil thing under the sun. And so the only way that God can 
give us a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem is to is to destroy completely, wipe out completely the old heaven and the old earth. So again, back to the Jews. The promise to Abraham and his physical descendants is that they are supposed to be given the land of Israel in the last days. It's a it's it's the prophetic super sign. So remember, the Jews rejected Christ, the Romans rejected Christ, and shortly after Christ uh, ascended into heaven, as he prophesied to his disciples, I mean, literally all hell broke loose against Jerusalem as the Roman uh, general Titus invaded Israel and slaughtered uh, over a million people men and women, and burnt down the original temple. And the heat of the burning down of the original t- temple was so intense that the gold ornaments in the temple melted and, and, and through the, the, the stones that, that composed the streets of Jerusalem, there was rivers of like liquid molten gold pouring down the, the stones. And the slaughter of people was horrific. And finally, the Roman soldiers took the remaining remnant of the Jews, and they put them in slave ships, and they exported them in slave ships, the Jews, to nations and empires all over the world, where they suffered greatly, but simultaneously they were raised up greatly. And this went on. Now, you have to understand that, unlike other religions, including Christianity, the central feature of the Jewish religion is sacrifices and worship in the physical temple of God, exclusively located in Jerusalem. It's not like you can just set up a temple anywhere on earth, be a Jew, and worship uh, God according to the Jewish religion. It ha- the worship ultimately has to be located in the physical temple of Israel, in the physical city of Jerusalem. So God's grace is on the Jews because their their worship today is directed towards the temple in Jerusalem. But they need to gain, according to the Bible, control of that which was taken from them. During the Six-Day War, or the Yom Kippur War, that occurred in 1967, the Jews actually did overwhelm the Egyptian army and the Palestinians and others. And they literally took control of all of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount area. The Jews militarily won back the Temple Mount area, okay, including the Dome of the Rock and everything else. Yet, I don't know, you know, this was in God's sovereignty, yet the leaders of Israel, I guess they feared, you know, World War III or a nuke coming down on them. So I, so they made that, that horrible mistake that Christians make today. They, they attempted to give up land for peace, and you never win playing that game. You never win playing the game if you're going to surrender the land God has given you in an attempt to buy peace. What that does is it only arouses the appetites of your enemies to want to conquer you and enslave you more and more and more. There's an expression I heard uh, used by special forces, Navy SEALs, and others that revealed their their strategy, and I thought it was quite clever. And I hope I'm quoting it properly, but in many branches of the military, especially military intelligence and special forces of various kinds, um, 
like the Navy SEALs, like Rangers, like uh, many different branches of the Navy, the U.S. Army, the Air Force, etc. They have an expression. You don't. It's like life battles, conflicts. It's like a playing a, a game of cards where bluffing and strategy is required to win poker or whatever game you're playing cards. And the expression I, I've heard a number of times, a number of times used is, they say, and I think it's very, a very intelligent statement, one that Christians should adopt and individuals should adopt. And the expression goes like this, you don't play the, the cards, you don't play the cards. You play the player. The idea is if you're focused on the cards and that's your strategy for winning the card game or the conflict, if you're focused on the cards, you're focused on you're focused in on a secondary dimension. You're not really getting to the heart of the battle. So you're going to always lose if all your resources and your strategies revolve around playing the cards. So the expression goes, you don't play the cards, you play the player, which is essentially saying your strategies, your maneuvers in the card game should be directed by understanding your enemy and then manipulating or playing your enemy until you're able to defeat him. So victory doesn't come from playing the cards, it comes from playing the player of the cards. Now, I thought that was very simple. But I actually got a revelation from it. And uh, that's what God wants us to do. The body of Christ in America needs to learn how to be strategic in the highest levels and stop playing the cards. You know, stop, stop waging war against the symptoms of what's wrong and get down to the heart of the matter. So stop playing the cards and play the player. You know, go to where the real power is and deal with it in a law-abiding and peaceful manner. And you will discover that you have victory. That's why, you know, that's why it says in the book of Proverbs, which is all about guidance and knowledge and wisdom and stuff, it urges us. I'm going to read this to you because this is, this is a game plan you can apply to your life. What we read in the book of Proverbs and uh, other places. Uh, and by the way, Proverbs was largely written. Uh, by Solomon, the king of Israel, who God called, God gave Solomon more wisdom, more wealth than any other man on planet Earth back then and in the course of human history. The, the, the richest and wisest man that ever lived was King Solomon. But even he, with all his wisdom, when he became an old man, he began to backslide. Even with all his wisdom, he began to backslide. And he started marrying. I don't ask me why. I don't know what the answer is. Well, I have a theory, but I don't know if it's right. Certain kings in Israel were allowed to and encouraged to marry multiple wives and to have multiple concubines, which they, they were responsible of feeding and housing and taking care of both their many wives and their concubines, which would be, I guess, mistresses, along with their wife. Now, you have to ask the question, how come God allowed it? Because it's the opposite of what he teaches all over the Bible, including the example of marriage in the book of Genesis between one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. So 
how is it that, you know, people like King David, people like King Solomon would have massive numbers of wives and concubines? Okay. My theory is, first of all, I would try to be humble enough to say, I don't have a conclusive answer, and I don't really know. I can speculate. My speculation could be wrong. My speculation is that because Israel lost so many men in the continual warfare and battles they were in, that because of all their uh, involvement in wars, the, the males, the statistical number or percentage of males in Israel was exceptionally high in proportion to the statistically and percentagely, the percentage basis, far lower number of females. So, in other words, there were tons. Wait, I messed up the explanation. Let me let me restate it because I'm, I'm into like, being real. I'm not going to turn back the tape and edit out my mistake. I mean, that's to me incredibly boring because even in the mistake, it illustrates the truth. So, so the point is that. Uh, there were plenty of females, but there were, were there were far less males. So you have a, an inequality, an unbalance, because this is not the case today. And I'm not making some kind of you know attempt to to say women need to be barefoot, pregnant, bake cookies, and stay home. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is back then, the way all cultures were. In fact, it was Christianity, which was the first culture in the human race, that truly began to liberate women and the female. So if you're going to read history accurately, you would have to say that the greatest liberator of women in all of history had nothing to do with the feminist movement, which has probably done more to enslave women than any other factor. Because who is it that is the victim of feminism? The victim of feminism always is the female first. So feminism, among other things, promotes free sex, sexual promiscuity, etc., etc., and does not promote traditional marriage or marriage at all. That's what feminism teaches. And the ideas of feminism have infiltrated the church. People are not aware of it, but on a subconscious level, we have all been infiltrated with the with the programming of feminism, which, by the way, was originally, when you go back to the communist revolution, the historical, philosophical, and sociological roots of feminism were conceived by the Marxist and communist theoreticians, because their primary targets were, number one, and this includes the Frankfurt School that that won the hearts of the seeker-friendly churches, and the Frankfurt School professors that seduced the, the shallow, the biblically shallow Christian leaders uh, into accepting a total heresy known as critical race theory, which the Nazis used to destroy the church in Germany, and the more recent, uh, well, excuse me, in, in Nazi Germany they called it the German schools of theological higher criticism, also known simply as critical theory. Critical theory is just a fancy way of saying you're going to indoctrinate all the people in Germany, especially those who want to be pastors and theologians, you're going to indoctrinate them in a, in a theology in which the primary focus is to criticize 
every little part of the Bible until the Bible is reduced to a pile of meaningless rubble. So critical theory is designed to suck out all aspects of the supernatural, all miracles, all Bible prophecy, all the power of the Bible. Is de- it, critical theory is designed to be a wrecking ball to a strong biblical faith. Now, the Nazis were not stupid. The Nazis were, because they served the devil, they were smart as the devil. The Nazis came out of the occult secret societies of Nazi Germany. I I write about this extensively. I was the first person on a mainstream level, writing from a biblical perspective, I was the first person to blow open the true story of the secret occult powers and the secret occult Nazi beliefs of the Third Reich and the Nazi rocket scientists and the Nazi mind control scientists and the Nazi uh, genetic scientists, and to expose the German theological schools of higher criticism. So if you've—and I talk about this in detail. You want to hit a home run and know what you're talking about? You don't have to say much. When you know what you're talking about, you just like—you don't even have to think about it. And and the words that you say in love are like somebody being hit with a karate chop, and you didn't even mean it. It's just that you're loaded for bears, so to speak. It, when you really have knowledge of history in the Bible, okay, when you have that, it just leaks out of you. And you'll discover that your enemies begin to retreat from your life. You begin to discover that in social gatherings, in, in, in corporate gatherings, in businesses, in communities. You don't have to say much because whatever you say reflects, I mean, you can say two words, and it reflects a depth of biblical understanding which confers upon you supernatural favor and the supernatural power of God. Oh my Lord, I wish some of you would wake up to the fact of what God has for you so much, so much. Okay, so you hardly have to say anything. It just leaks out of you, and it's like a karate chop, and you discover that you're not attacked as much. In fact, I hardly ever get attacked by anybody who knows me or knows my reputation. And that includes from really arrogant pastors. Because I don't give away <laughs> I don't give away land for peace. I don't give away land for peace. And so I speak the truth in love, but if they're going to attack me in some mean-spirited manner, they learn very quickly that they're going to get dropped. As I speak the truth in love, they will be dropped. That's all dropped. And they don't want to be embarrassed in front of their friends, so they don't want to be dropped. So guess what? They leave me alone, and even if they hate me, they pretend they like me. The same will happen to you. And man, that takes a lot of stress out of your life. But the price tag is, you've got to stop watching, you know, these ridiculous game shows and whatever the heck you're watching on TV, and get the knowledge of God's Word. So in Proverbs, this is why in Proverbs, oh, back to why they had so many wives. My theory is that God may have allowed this as a temporary interim measure because of the lack of females, the lack of mothers, and the lack of wives, which ultimately ultimately met the lack of children, and God is all about being fruitful and multiplying by Israel. So I believe he allowed the kings to have concubines and multiple wives and wives because the kings, like David and Solomon, had the massive, enormous resources, enormous wealth to be able to properly house, take care of, provide for 
these large numbers of wives and concubines that they had. It wasn't just a lust thing, okay? It wasn't just like, you know, whoever the guy lusts after, he can hop in bed with her. That's not what it was about. I know every guy thinks of that's what it's about, and many women do too, but that's not what it was about. Because from what I've read, not everybody that they chose to be their concubine or wives was always exceptionally beautiful or whatever. I think they understood that this was a responsibility given to them by God that would allow large numbers of women to be taken care of and have children and and not be shamed by the society for being a single woman or whatever. That's my theory, anyway. Uh, And I'm probably right, unless somebody emails me and tells me conclusively from the Bible. Uh, that I'm wrong. Oh, okay. But the but the, but the but the assumption by God was the commandment by God was you had to um, you had to uh, only marry the wives of Israel and, and the sons and daughters the, the daughters of Israel. You were not allowed to, to marry the pagan wives. You were not allow, allowed to marry the wives of the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, and all the rest of the ites. You know that their DNA was corrupted with Nephilim Rephaim DNA. They they were, you know, they were the ones that were controlling Canaan, which became Israel later on. See, because God knew if the if Solomon and anybody else in Israel started marrying foreign wives, that the if they married foreign wives, then the Jewish men, kings or just ordinary men, wives have an amazing ability to persuade, influence program, if you will, their husbands. And so God instituted that law as a protective measure so that the men of Israel, including the kings of Israel, would not be led astray spiritually and follow the the false religions of their pagan wives because their pagan wives were worshiping idols. And let's be like really specific and graphic within taste about what that worship involved. And I'm going to give you a, a five seconds head up if you had a child. I think it's appropriate, but you may not, and I want to respect your parenthood. Unlike the school system, I respect and honor your parenthood, either as a mother or a father or whoever you are in terms of grandmother, whoever you are who's been given the holy responsibility of raising children. So here's the five second warning one, two, three, four, five. And this is a bonus number six, and there's no occultic meaning because I gave you a bonus number of six. It's just I wanted to give you extra time. Okay, so here is how the the women uh, who worshipped idols, the women who worshipped foreign gods, the primary methodologies of worship were animal sacrifice, but more disturbingly, they sacrificed their babies alive. They burned their babies alive in human sacrifice on the altars of Baal that represented Satan. And they sacrificed and committed egregious sexual immorality uh, when they were worshiping the female version of Baal, whose name was Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth throughout human history, she's called many different names, like Isis and Venus and Aphrodite and on and on and on. And... um, Many temples of prostitution are built to worship her. So, worshiping her, Ashtaroth, leads into both human sacrifice and hypersexual immorality. And worshiping Baal means human sacrifice, child sacrifice. And and you need to know precisely 
the level of cruelty that was part of this worship, because that will give you, if you want to know the answer to why a loving God could do some of these apparently very cruel things, you don't have to walk around like some kind of zombie land tourist. You can have a definitive, comprehensive answer, which will give you power, baby, when you're mixing with unbelievers in your family or social circles or whatever. Because they are, I promise you, in terms of strategy, they are inevitably going to ask you, how can you believe in a God who claims to be love? How can a loving God do such, quote, horrible things or allow such horrible things to happen, like what God commanded the Jews to do in the Old Testament when he told them to go into the foreign nations and slaughter all the people? How can you say that that's a God of love? That's barbaric. Okay, front and center, wake up, smell the coffee. In fact, do what I do, smell the espresso and let it rock your world. Wake up. Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead so that the light of Christ will shine upon you as the light of Christ is shining upon you now. Why? Because the light of Christ is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word become that became flesh. Okay, so here's the deal. These foreign wives that they were forbidden to marry worshipped their foreign gods like Baal and Ashtaroth by burning their children alive on the altars of Baal. So there would be this metallic statue of Baal with metallic hands outstretched, and they would the priests of Baal would superheat up with fire and whatever they called charcoal or whatever, until, until the hands in the statue of Baal were white-hot, red-hot heat, white-hot, because it was heated up to such a high temperature. And then they would take their precious baby or daughter, and and they were this is the way they worship Baal. They were asking Baal for money and props and healing, and you know they were worshiping Baal as their god. And Baal worship required that you be willing to sacrifice your children. So the way you sacrificed your children, and this is what the foreign wives did, the worshippers of foreign gods type of wives, they put their precious little baby, their male and female babies, on the red hot burning white hands, heated up by fire, and they placed their young little precious babes on the heated up hands, which caused their precious little babies to be burnt alive. And by burning alive in horrible agony, their precious newborn children, they were hoping to access blessings from Baal. Now, that and other sins even grosser. Um, this, is what, this is what marrying foreign wives, according to God and God's understanding of history, this is where it ended up. So even though Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived on planet Earth, I mean, everybody wanted to get wisdom from him. He was the wisest man who ever lived, and yet in his old age, he, his brain began to slip. He let down his guard, he disobeyed the Word of God, which he clearly knew, and he married these foreign wives. And you bet your you-know-what that the foreign wives, God forbid, you know, because this guy, even in his elder years, was messing around with his wives and concubines, you know what I'm saying. So a certain number of them were, were pregnant with his child. Now, the reality is, old or not, he never he may have seen his ch- the, the child, been there at the birth, but then... The Bible doesn't really point out whether Solomon joined his foreign wives in these abominable ceremonies, or the wives just 
worship Baal and Ashtaroth by themselves. But the women that he impregnated, they burnt his and their baby alive on the altars of Baal. Horrific, huh? And that's why these these pagan religions um, ultimately are rooted and grounded in the demonic. They're Luciferian. They're Luciferian. Okay, so God wants you not to make the same mistake. Because here in America, we are making that same mistake. Let me ask you, what is the difference between making it legal to, they, they call it aborting your child after your child is birthed from your womb? Okay, so to be specific, your child is outside of you. It's come through where it's supposed to come through, and you can see your little baby crying, and then eventually they'll cut their umbilical cords. Okay, and you, and you can look at it, and you know it's a baby, you know it's alive, you even got a name for it. And then many women, protected by the law in many places, they then uh, abort, but it, you really can't call it an abortion, because what is it when you kill somebody that's completely born, even after the umbilical cords are cut? Is that abortion or is it murder? Well, you know the answer to that. I don't need to explain it to you. So what's, in terms of that being horrific, and it is, in terms of that being painful beyond description, and it is, in terms of that being an abomination to God because God is love, what is the difference between the foreign wives burning their babies on the altars of Baal and, and women in America and across the world killing their babies after they're fully born? Well, in God's eyes, there is no difference. There is no difference. And that practice is Luciferian. It's Satanism. And that's why, you know, I haven't had to endure in this ministry for, man, I've been around for a long time, and it flew by, okay? But I've been here for decades on planet Earth. And by the grace of God, I have been so many places, seeing so many different kinds of people, that God has given me a very unique perspective on things. And let me just say something straight up, right from the heart. It is a biblical Christian's responsibility to stand up and speak the truth in love or become an alternative. Even when it comes to the horrors of killing a fully born baby, you, you speak the, the truth in love, but speaking the truth in love re requires that you do everything in your power to strategically pierce the, the, the hardness of heart and actually reach the person with the truth. You may feel that screaming at them at the top of your lungs and calling them a murderer and blood this and the rest, you may think that that's justified because you're, you're perceiving the, the egregious nature of the moral crime. So you think that gives you a license to scream and holler at them. All I'm telling you is I understand your passion. I understand the intensity of emotion that it evokes. I, I got that. But if you're going to be strategic, in most cases, it would be wise that you would function in this way. You would be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. You would learn how to not bash people over the head of the Bible, but you would learn how to covertly influence people and win them to the love of God in such a manner that they don't put up their defense mechanisms. Just something to think about. Okay, Proverbs. In other words, this is not biblical. 
but I'm going to use this expression. Whether it's abortion or choosing the right president or whatever, or dealing with a school system that's a runaway train, if you want to win, don't play the cards, play the player. That means, like, the schools are showing, you know, totally zombie land, wacko, full-on, super hardcore pornography videos to children and all kinds of stuff, beginning in young years in the public school. That's shocking and horrifying to parents, and very threatening, and I totally understand. But <clears throat> your goal is not just to express your emotion. Your ultimate goal is to change the situation. So how can you be effective? The way you're effective is you, you don't function in a predictable manner. You don't come at them in a way that they're prepared for. And by the way, they attend seminars that prepare them for people like you. So they know how to verbally marginalize you, ver uh, manipulate the, the, the other parents in the room to turn the other parents against you. They're taught strategies, sentences, questions, and techniques. And if you, if you are not prepared for this sophisticated sword fight, they're going to take you down. And that's not what God wants. So you need to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. You have to have a strategy going in there. You have to anticipate in advance or think through in advance what kind of attacks you're going to endure, what kind of curveballs you're going to be thrown. And then you don't stand there like a stooge. You are mobile. You are quick on your feet because you've practiced this before you got on the debate. And you're prepared for these things. and you. You have answers and sentences and punchlines that essentially turns the tables. So you're not just focused in on the problem, how, however horrible and disturbing and immoral the problem is. <clears throat> you go beyond that. You don't play the cards. You play the player. In this case, you're going to play or take control of the people who, whether they know it or not, have stepped into the role of being your enemy. And you're going to use skills that require that you learn the skills beforehand, because they have. <clears throat> skills like NLP, or neuro-linguistic programming skills. Psychological manipulation skills. How to marginalize you type of skills. <clears throat> I spent years studying these things, <clears throat> because I'm all about being effective and strategic. Not being a sucker or a soft target. Let's, let's open this up and come back in a moment. You're listening to the Paul McGuire Report. I'm Paul McGuire. Visit now paulmcguire.us. This is Paul McGuire, and you are listening to the Paul McGuire Report. One of the things we try to do is take biblical truth and principles and communicate them without sacrificing the integrity of God's Word. Communicate them in the language of everyday people and the culture not just to religious people. And so we use social media, we use intentionally a certain kind of uh, methodology in the words we use in communication, the illustrations, etc. It may rock some people's world, it may upset people, most people it opens them up. And more importantly, the people we want to reach, the people that are alienated from Christianity, the, the statistical number Modern pollsters have revealed, and these are reputable pollsters, that the fastest growing religion in America is witchcraft, Wicca, and the pagan religion. 
Why is that? Because they're not being, quote, religious. They're, they're promising power. They're promising, they're promising what the Bible promises, for crying out loud. But God's people quit teaching the Bible. God's people are talking about how you can be a victim. Witches, warlocks, the occult are teaching people how you can have power and mastery over your life. Now, why would young people be attracted to a theology of victimhood? Well, they wouldn't be. And that's why the fastest growing religion in America is witchcraft or Wicca or uh, pagan worship, because it promises power, it promises the supernatural. And it's interesting. And it is perceived as fun. Now, conversely, oh, excuse me. And then another poll came out relatively soon after that one by another reputable pollster. And they determined that there was a tie now for the two fastest growing religions in America. The two religions that are tied together for being the fastest growing religions in America are one, the religion of witchcraft or Wicca or paganism, and it is tied with the religion of secular humanism. The Supreme Court defined secular humanism, by the way, as a religion. So they can talk all they want about secular humanism not being a religion, but the Supreme Court overruled them and and said secular humanism is a religion. It's just a religion whose main theological tenet is there is no God, and that man is God, and that's a falsehood. And secular humanism actually is directly connected to transhumanism, which is the humanist idea that we can become gods through computer technology, artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, etc., etc. But again, humanism, and I talk about I, I talk about all of this in my book, Power from On High, which you need to get and need to read and need to spread around. It's going to stretch you. It's going to cause you to grow. It's going to increase the spiritual power and the spiritual wisdom in your life. It will facilitate breakthrough, both on the individual level and on the national and global level. The book is written not to play games, but to no retreat, no surrender regarding the kingdom of God. Okay, and that's it. Right now, we have super, super discounts on the books, different books, uh, that have powerful biblical truths that are applicable to your life and the situation that we find ourselves in. All of that, including the discounts, is available to you now. A lot of the books are 34% off for crying out loud. And last time I looked, we're paying for the shipping. I mean, what more do you want? Visit paulmcguire.us. That's paulmcguire.us. Okay. So these two, these two things basically are, are tied for the fastest growing religions in America. Notice conspicuously that Christianity, which used to be, decades ago, the fastest-growing religion in America, is no longer the fastest-growing religion in America. I don't know where it places, but it's certainly not number one. And it's not that this is, you know, a game, and we want to win the game, and we want to have the higher percentage, and we want to be number one. That's not it at all. But unfortunately, the painful reality is that if those pagan witchcraft religions or humanism or transhumanism are number one, what that means is there there is a percentage loss, a measurable percentage loss in how many souls that will be saved, how much of a biblical revival can spread across our nation, 
and whether or not we can reclaim our nation and the future generations for Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Those, that data, those statistics, is not about the, the, the simpleton notion of who's winning the game. It's not a game. It's reality. And we're talking about the people, the younger generations and the young people. So those statistics give us a statistical projection of what the spiritual, mental, philosophical condition and practice will be in the future of America and, and, and in the future generations. That should ring off like an alarm bell or, or a watchman on the wall blowing a trumpet, which is one of the functions and calls that God has given me. And God has given this ministry, as he has done uh, with other individuals and ministries, to blow a trumpet of warning, which I'm doing now, by the way. But I can only do it with your help. We can recapture the stolen generations. We can take back to whatever degree God allows us. We can, we can occupy in the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And we, if we do that, then Christianity will be the fastest growing religion in America. And again, the purpose is not, oh, it's a baseball game, it's the Olympics, or it's, you know, it's a football game. This is not about being number one for number one's sake. This is about number one being a measurement of who is going to rule and control the future. So it's, a, it's supposed to be a wake-up call for us to do what we're supposed to do. And when the Bible is taught properly, and people have the mind of Christ and will accept the discipline of walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we become victorious. What enabled King David, who, who also had to deal with temptations, and his sin in that area cost him plenty. What was he doing up on his roof? I know that roofs back then were, were like a, a patio, you know, and they were used for multiple purposes. But why was he always taking his walk on his King David up on his roof in the plain sight of a, a, a supposedly a very attractive, totally naked woman taking a bath? And why did she choose this woman, Bathsheba? Why did she choose? <laughs> Come on, man, wake up. Get real. Why did she choose to take a bath naked knowing, believe me, you know where the king where the king's house is, where the king's roof is? Why did she position her bathtub or whatever and herself in plain view of the king? Well, you're smart enough, you can figure it out. In any case, that sin cost David a lot. But prior to that, David saved Israel in an important military conflict where it was going to be all over for them. The armies of Israel, led by King Samuel, were petrified by a Nephilim giant named Goliath, a Nephilim Rephaim giant named Goliath, who, who was taunting and mocking the armies of Israel. And behind this giant Goliath was the mighty Syrian army. It's just that Goliath was their point man. And all of Israel was afraid, like many Christians today are afraid. They're afraid because they're not walking in the power of God. That's why I called my book Power from on High. Power from on High. Not to argue theology, but to, to rediscover a lost truth. So David, however theologically you want to describe the move of the Holy Spirit or the anointing of God that was on him, because it wasn't on him, um, he, in a fearless state, 
what, what psychologists, what neuropsychiatrists might call David entering a flow state, or as neuropsychiatrists might call entering the zone, when, when all you can see is your victory and you're in a state of super serenity and calmness, and you know that you know that you know you're going to take down Goliath by just swirling around your slingshot. And with one smooth stone, oh, before he dropped Goliath by landing the stone in the forehead of Goliath, he counted, he countered Goliath's psyop or psychological operations tactic to, to fill the armies of Israel with fear as he mocked them. So David, as psychiatrists and psychologists might describe, he entered a flow state. He entered the zone. And from there, he faced Goliath, looked at Goliath directly in the eye. And all of a sudden, because of the anointing of the power of God within him, out of his inner man exploded the words that came out at a very high volume, anointed with the authority of God's Holy Spirit. He said to Goliath, um, with authority and power, he declared and broke the struggle in the invisible realm first. He declared these words, how dare you defy the armies of the living God. And then whoosh, he whirls around his slingshot and he lands that smooth stone in the forehead of Goliath. Goliath drops. The, Phil the Syrian army is terrified and they're peeing in their pants. They're shaking in their boots and they begin to run. But, but they're, still, they're still hanging in there. And so David marches forward and picks up the dead Goliath by the hair, takes the sword of Goliath, chops Goliath's head off, pulls his head up by the hair high, and shows the decapitated head of their giant Goliath to the Syrian army. And that caused, caused a stampede of retreat as the Syrian army that were, were legendary for their ruthlessness and cruelty fled for their lives fled for their lives. You know, God wants to do a similar thing in America. Not one of physical violence, one of spiritual power. But in order to acquire that spiritual power, you've got to do stuff like get power from on high, which means you've got to read the scripture, you've got to meditate in the scripture, you have to pray to the Lord. Just like Jesus told the disciples. He told them before he ascended into heaven, he said, Go to Jerusalem, tarry in Jerusalem, until the Father sends you power from on high, which means the dunamis, dynamite explosion of God, which also means until the Father clothes you with power from on high. Because when you have that supernatural anointing, the dunamis, power from on high, that is a game changer. You move from, from you know, basic beginning Boy Scout to highly trained super soldier in, in seconds. Now, I'm not knocking Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts are a great preliminary training discipline for young men. So I'm not putting that down. There's a place for that. But if you're an adult or an older man, there's nothing wrong with volunteering to, to lead a troop or whatever. It's admirable. But you, in terms of your own spirituality, should not be operating any longer at the level of a Boy Scout. 
you should be at least operating on the level of a highly trained, effective soldier. And if you really want to go all the way and pay the price of discipline, renewing your mind with the Word of God, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, picking up your cross and following Jesus, you have an opportunity to be a super soldier in the spiritual army of God. It's up to you. According to your faith, be it unto you. And I can, you know, anticipate somebody going, where does it say that in the Bible? I don't see it saying anything about super soldiers in the Bible. I could answer that in an unkind way, but I'm not going to. I would simply say, I could point to you countless examples from the Bible of real-life historical events where the armies of God, the soldiers of God, literally and unquestionably functioned at the level of super soldiers as they were involved in military conflicts with the enemy. So, you know, in love, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Because this is how it plays out. David, I just gave you an example. Was he or was he not functioning on the level of a super soldier? Realizing, of course, we're using a metaphor. We're using a metaphor and a parable. Why are you using a parable? Because Jesus used parables. It's, an, it's, a, it's a tool in communicating. What about Joshua and Caleb, who had their perception altered by the power of God, and they took down, they dropped the, the Nephilim, Rephium giants, and their perception was altered by God, so they perceived themselves as giants. That's like super soldier training. They perceived themselves as giants, and they perceived the so-called giants as grasshoppers. And the move of the Spirit was so radical that the giants themselves began to perceive themselves as grasshoppers. And that's just the beginning. We could go through so many examples that make your head spin. In any case, we have a job to do. And we've got to raise the level of the power we walk in, the wisdom we, we, we absorb. And that will release the blessings that you want. A lot of you are crying out to God for blessings and answers to prayer and stuff. And God wants to, do, to answer those prayers and help you and intervene far more than you know. But let's be honest. It's sometimes all of us, including me, we don't really get serious, like 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 belly down on the rug time serious in, in praying to God and crying out to God. We don't get serious until we have to. Until we it's sad, but it's true, and I'm guilty of it too. We 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 try everything, and then we when we run out of every carnal, humanistic, secular thing that we can do to solve the problem. Then, as a last resort, and it should never be that way, then as a last resort, we run to God and start really going after his supernatural power. Why not save ourselves a lot of grief in America and around the world and start going after God now? July 4th is coming up. You know what that means? I had a vision in July 4th a number of years ago. The Lord is, is brewing in my heart to share something very prophetic uh, on the July 4th program, which may air before it or after it or during it. I don't know yet. Just keep checking paulmcguire.us. We can take back significant territory if we'll sync up with God and obey God and rely on his power, wisdom, and knowledge. I need you to join me. I'm not here to play games, as you can tell. Pray. Whatever God tells you to donate, flat out obey him. End of story. 
become an intercessory prayer warrior for me, the ministry, my family, and the people associated with the ministry. Be an intercessory prayer warrior. Number three, sign up and join the e-blast list. Thank you for doing it, by the way. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Many of you have have responded to the call. Sign up for our Rumble page, our Brideon page, or whatever social media you're watching on. Make sure you sign up, that you like, you follow. Because you know, it's rigged. I have looked at, I'm not going to, well, yeah, I'm going to talk about Rumble for a minute. Rumble's supposed to be this wonderful alternative. I really wonder, because I have internal data that I can look at. Yeah, I have data to compare other data with. And we on Rumble have been hovering at like 1.9, uh, which means 1,900, you know, regular viewers. Um, we've been, but we've been stuck at 1.9 for a long period of time. And I know lots of you are signing up. So what's what's really going on uh, at Rumble? Now today, I think we're at 1.96. So it goes up a fraction of a percentage over like a three-month period. Something is rotten in Denmark. The rigging is not just who you think it is. So I need your help. I need your help because the numbers matter only because the numbers give you the worldly power and gives you access and territory that you can't get unless you generate the numbers. But because I've been so effective over the decades, and I've been in this game a long time, reaching millions of people, and it was measurable, it used to be plainly, you used to be able to, to just flick on one page and you would see the numbers confirm that I'm that I'm alleging, you know, millions of people, millions of followers for a long, long time. And then when they started the rigging, mm-hmm, they started slicing and dicing it and making up the numbers, which are far lower. Why? They want to marginalize me. But guess what, baby? I'm not going to be marginalized. I'm not going to be marginalized. And with your help, I don't have to be because I'm standing up for what you want and what you believe in. God bless you. This is Paul McGuire. Visit paulmcguire.us. <laughs>